The Start On Demand. demand. Well, Loren, it was a gutsy team performance under unusual circumstances with a non-unusual ending, I might say. More of the same. Yeah, for the 14th time in 15 visits to Regina on Labor Day, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are coming home without a victory. Pajardo, shotgun just inside right hash, has the ball, fires to the end zone, touchdown, Shaq Evans, as Fenner and Rios look at one another and say, you got him, you got him, Strebler is in the gun, and he'll give it to Augustine, good hole, left side of the 50, center field, the rider, 50, the 45, the 40, the 35, the 30, Augustine, the 20, the 15, the 10, and down to the nine-yard line. What a great move he made, Doug, just as he broke the line of scrimmage. First and goal at the rider, nine. Ball's on the left hash. Strebler, back to pass, throws it into the end zone, touchdown! Kenny Lawler, deep in the end zone, hauls it in, and the Blue Bombers very quickly narrow the gap. Here we go, third and goal at the one-yard line. Strebler under center. Which side does he go? Right side, and he's in for the touchdown. And Lowther will line up to kick a 26-yard field goal. He'll let the clock run down until there's only a second or two left, and if he makes it, the game will be over. It'll be from left hash. There's the snap, the ball down, the kick is up, and it is good. And the Riders have won it. 19-17. Yes, a heartbreaking loss for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in Regina. I was saying to you, I was driving home, right? And I'm with my kids in the car and explaining to them right near the end there in the third quarter with just under four minutes left when Streveler gets the touchdown, you're like, oh my gosh, we're up by a point. Like this might, it's the first time in a long time watching a Labor Day Classic where you, we were in it in that moment, right? Chance to win. And then as soon as the, the riders got the ball, they made it pretty clear they knew where they were going with it. And uh. <laughs> It was a game that sort of reminded me of the 2007 Labor Day Classic. A lot of people will remember that. Kerry Joseph, the quarterback for the Riders at the time, uh, took off on a quarterback run right up the middle, scored a touchdown. The Bombers were up 31-26, mm-hmm. I think, at the time. And uh, maybe, 20, no, they were up 26-24. The Riders ended up winning 31-26 in that game. 2011, the Bombers were 7-1. and Saskatchewan won in seven going into the Labor Day Classic. Saskatchewan not only won the LDC, but also came back to Winnipeg and won the Banjo mm-hmm. Bowl. So we're not unfamiliar with uh, with this territory. Yesterday, the Bombers, despite their first place standing, who were decided underdogs, playing without both Andrew Harris and Matt Nichols, the Bombers had negative 10 yards offense in the first Quarter, if you can believe that. They were trailing 10 nothing, and it was sort of looking, Loren, as though things were going to go how many even the most loyal Blue Bomber fans were imagining it might go. I almost wondered if I would have felt better if it had just continued down that road. Oh, if yeah. it didn't get close. Yeah, you know what? There is some merit to that. You know, losing uh, by two points versus 20 points. Because there was that brief moment where I was points. like, oh my gosh, like this might happen. 
Yeah, don't don't you got to just don't believe. The defense tightened up for the most part and the offense found some traction. They managed to grind its way to a 17-16 lead. You mentioned about 4 minutes 329 left to play when a penalty on the ensuing kickoff, the Strevler go ahead touchdown resulted in the Riders there was a penalty. Uh Medlock had kicked the ball into the end zone. The Riders had given up a, a single point, but a penalty on the play the Bombers gave back the point, and Saskatchewan started on their own five-yard line, which made the improbable seem possible. We all know how it turned out. Bomber linebacker Adam Big Hill refused to find a moral victory in making it close or holding the Riders to under 20 points or holding the Riders to zero points in the second half until that final play, the game-winning field goal. Very strong performance by the defensive unit, giving up only 19 points. How did you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think we did a fairly good job executing except for really the last drive when we had an opportunity to win the game. And, um, you know, we put that on our back. If we're ahead and we're out on the field, we have a chance to win it. We got to do it. So, I mean, definitely defensively, we, we put this one on us. What did they do in that last drive that uh, that made their their plays effective? Anything well, I mean, we had a couple second and longs and we didn't get them off the field. I mean, that's key. But then, you know, they were in a handful of second and, and relatively short, second and three. Second and three, it kind of keeps their playbook. Um, wide open as far as what they can do um, you know so uh, you really got to win first down in, in critical moments and critical situations and when you when you have second long you gotta get off the field and you know we got to be able to take advantage of those opportunities we haven't gathered to to commiserate in a in a solemn fashion we're not feeling sorry for ourselves or one another well maybe we are <laughs> we're here on the holidays uh, Labor Day, lots of you have today off. Lots of you are working, so we commiserate with you. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb. Kelly Moore is back. Welcome back, Kelly. Good to be back. Jeff Forche, great to have you back as well. Thank you, thank you. And Jeff Braun, we're still stuck with you. Hello. After all. Hey. <laughs> hey, I just want to know, G-Mac, did uh, Nabber and uh, Jeff Braun phone each other before work this Greg morning? I, I send pics of myself every morning to, yeah. i got to get you on that list, Kelly. Nothing, yeah. is, <laughs> nothing is better today. than a 3 a.m. text from Jeff Braun showing what, what, you what, you gonna, what he's wearing. But today? we are dressed pretty similar. Yeah, gray, you are. Gray yeah. pants and blue T-shirts, t-shirts this morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys both look like you wore your pajamas to work today. Hey, man. <laughs> I suppose uh, we would be forgiven if we were inclined to go that road today, Loren? Well, I think it's because uh, Labor Day is when we pause and reflect over the hard work of our year while working. <laughs> and I think that's the place to do it. I think if you're going to pause and just take some time to think about how hard you work and all your tax dollars, you say, you know where I want to do that? At, at work. Well, it's not like we have a pickaxe on our shoulder. I mean, th- th- there are more. There are more difficult ways to make a living, Kelly sure. Moore. And yeah. and I mean, let's face it. We've all worked our fair share of holidays, whether it's been in this business or or others. You grew up. Your your parents had a restaurant, right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, there were I, no holidays. There were no holidays. Yeah. So have you got some reflection in terms of working on a holiday and the first time you realized, hey, wait a minute. I shouldn't be should have been a, shouldn't have been at work yesterday. Well, you know what? I've never really thought of it that way because uh, you enjoy when you when you have that extra day off for sure. But uh, yeah, as a kid growing up, it, it was just commonplace. Like we worked seven days a week because that was the business that my parents were in. So you didn't think of it as. Uh, 
you know, well, we should have uh, the May long weekend off or, or, or whatever that. No, that was a great day for business mm-hmm. because no one was working and they didn't really want to cook dinner in the kitchen either. So they came to the restaurant instead. That yeah, was the yeah. same growing up on a farm. You weren't, yeah. you weren't this day. I mean, this is go time on most farms across yeah. the prairies, right? So you weren't looking to Labor Day like, oh, I can't wait for that long weekend. And the same goes for Thanksgiving because that would mark kind of your out time. If you weren't out by then yeah. off the fields, then you were in trouble. And if you're not in the fields around May long, it's the same thing. So all these holidays meant well, really yeah, nothing. And, and for dairy farmers or, or chicken farmers, I There's mean, no hey, break there. No, not at all. Yeah, the, the cows don't say, oh, it's a holiday Monday. I'm not going to have milk today. Yeah. I'll hold it. <laughs> Nurses, doctors, yeah. frontline workers, emergency services. Uh, let's face it, there's no such thing as a holiday for a lot of those folks. Jeff, I can only imagine the holidays you've worked in this business oh, over this your 20 would years. probably be my 21st straight Labor Day working, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm sort of used to it. It really never used to bother me, especially when I was single, because I was like, I'm not missing anything anyways. Everyone else is having a nice family dinner, and I'm just going to Subway, so I might as well go to work, you know? Uh, last year, though, I did miss out, because we work Thanksgiving, right? And yes. I had to leave a, a cabin situation, Thanksgiving dinner early to get back in time for work. That one was a legitimate bummer, but usually it doesn't bother me too much. The worst one, honestly, was 15 years ago. It was also a Thanksgiving, and I thought, oh, everyone's having turkey. I'll just go get some fried chicken from the fast food fried chicken place, which I won't mention because it uh, paid dividends very quickly in a very disgusting way, and I haven't been back since. <laughs> 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 I did not think we were going. No, Thanks a lot, Jeff. Forte, do you mind working the holiday or what? I don't mind working the holiday. Um, plus, you know, time and a half or Cha-ching. whatever. Exactly, exactly. The only holiday I don't like to work well actually there's two christmas but uh i would have to say new year's day don't like working it and i think everyone knows why <laughs> yes <laughs> that's completely yeah. fair yeah. Uh, i find that like i don't mind working it i was used to it growing up and i've worked christmas days plenty of years yeah. and all yeah. the rest uh, i just uh, the older i get in the sense of having the kids and things you're trying to get organized for really could have used this day just to get things going and, yeah, and be, start to be a little yeah. bit more organized. But, you know, you just have to plan for that. I don't like working Thanksgiving. I am, that, um, that almost bugs me more than Christmas because Thanksgiving is a super relaxed kind of Christmas. It's where you get together with the family yeah. and you have this great meal if you're no lucky gifts. and fortunate enough, but you don't have the stress of the gifts <laughs> and all the rest. So it's this really, like, lovely time to be together and to eat that huge meal on a Sunday, which is our tradition, but now get up at this hour. <laughs> you're just like... like I'll only have half because I got to go to bed in an and hour. Nothing's digested. It's, it really, it really bugged me last year. So that's the one that kind of. Like I, I would like back. Yeah, you know, it's funny that Jeff mentions New Year's Eve and the whole idea. It always brings me back to my days at, at Earl's in Vernon, BC, and my buddy Mike, who only worked three or four days in like a, a two-week period, always got to pick his schedule, and he phoned in on New Year's Eve. I knew he was going out, and he says, uh, Mackling, well, what, do, what do I work uh, next few days? I go, well, you're off tonight, but you got to work at 12 tomorrow. And I paused. I waited for him to freak out. Okay. Well, I guess I won't be drinking as much. His 12 o'clock shift on New Year's Day was my 12 o'clock <laughs> shift yeah. on New Year's Day. And I just took a little bit of an eraser and uh, swapped his shift for mine. And, and away we went. So those are good uh, memories. And uh, Scott, uh, our good friend here, says uh, it reminds us that he, he's been working for Bell MTS for 30 four years, spent 17 years on cable maintenance. So he had to work a shift, but uh, uh, 
had to work a shift every seven weeks. Probably my worst shift ever was being called out on Christmas Eve to go in Christmas Day morning on a cut cable and just so happened to be my son's very first Christmas. He was only seven months at the time, spent all day Christmas Day in a trench splicing a cut cable. So, uh, oh, that's brutal, especially uh, working in a trench on, uh, I once, outside. Oof. I once had to call CAA on New Year's Day. Because my car had broken down from, I was driving from Altona to Brandon, mm-hmm. broke down in McGregor, and they're like, it's going to be a three-hour wait because the guy wants to have dinner with his family or whatever. I said, that's fine. There was a little bar there that was open or whatever, so I was like, I'll just sit here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I felt guilty. You feel bad. Like, you yeah, feel bad I was like bringing that taking this guy. Out. Well, he had to tow me from McGregor to Brandon and drive home, so he had like a four or five-hour deal and out of it. maybe that's something for all of us to think about today. If you end up at that place, like, you know, restaurant or other, that person's working today. Where the rest of so many of us are off, hundred so percent. Maybe give them a little extra leeway. Forche, Braun, Kelly, Moore, McNabb. Thank you very much for this. Wind gusts up to two hundred ninety-seven kilometers per hour. The storm surge, they're talking up to 20 feet. And the highest point on Grand Bahama, uh, Bahama Island is something like 32 feet above sea level. So uh, absolute devastation in that part of the world. And as we uh, send out our, our thoughts and, and concerns for the folks in the Bahamas, we will uh, turn our attention to Florida. Jason Merrick lives in Parkland, Florida, joins us now. Good morning, Jason. Morning, Greg. How are you? Doing really well. Great to talk to you. I'm, uh, it's unfortunate that it's uh, typically under circumstances like this. I think this is the second time in three years we've had a discussion with you on air. Jason, a former Winnipegger, lives in Florida, has lived there for some time now. The last time we spoke with regard to a hurricane, I think you were on your way to Atlanta, Georgia, to get out of uh, harm's way. Uh, I think that was uh, two years ago. <clears throat> Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Almost two years ago to the day, yeah. So what what is uh, what's going on in, in your neck of the woods right now? What what's the feeling? Uh, what are the preparations uh, been like for you personally, and, and what do you see going on around you? Well, first first of all, you know, there's a lot of stress and anxiety associated with these with these hurricanes. Um, the forecasts constantly change. You know, we get updates. Uh, you know, every three to six hours on the track, the intensity. Um, you know, every ten miles or, you know, 15, 16 kilometers is very, you know, very important with these things. Um, this particular storm right now where it's sitting, uh, three or four days ago, they predicted it to be sitting right over, you know, our area, doing exactly what it's doing right now, basically, you know, destroying uh, the area that it's sitting over. I mean, it's literally, um, you know, not moving at all and, and, and just sitting and destroying everything in its path. Um so um, I was out on the West Coast. I flew back early uh, because they thought it was going to hit here. Um, right now, you know, based on where I am exactly to where the center of the storm is, is about 130 miles. So it's about 200 kilometers. That's how close uh, this storm is to the Florida coast. And, you know, everybody's pretty anxious. They want to see, you know, it turn to the north. They're, they're predicting it will. Uh, every model's predicting it will. Um, we're getting some pretty bad rain bands uh, in here right now um, with uh, high winds. And the further north you go, um, you know, I'm up in Jupiter, Florida all the time. They're they're predicting that there's, you know, a good chance that they're going to be getting hurricane force winds there. 
um, and just hoping uh, that the that, that the eye of the storm, which is about you know third you know it's ten miles wide, but the hurricane force winds extend an additional twenty miles. So you know you don't want to be within that thirty mile swath. They're they're just hoping and praying that it stays offshore. That's the hope for so many people where you are, Jason, but that's the hope. What do you do to prepare in the meantime? How do you set up your home or is it hurricane ready after all these years? Um, well, after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, uh, the new code, there's been new codes, you know, on homes down here in, uh, in South Florida. Um, the, ho- the newer homes that have been built in the last, let's say, 10 years have hurricane impact windows. Um, in terms of preparation, I mean, you know, it involves making sure you have enough gas for your car, you know, canned foods, um, making sure you take all your patio furniture in from, from outside. Um, for homes built, you know, prior to the last, let's say, seven to ten years, they have storm shutters. So that involves, you know, manually putting your storm shutters up unless you have, uh, you know, accordion ones, which are fairly easy to close. Um a lot of people in my area, which is Parkland, which is right on the cusp of West Palm Beach and, um, uh, sorry, which is right on the cusp of Palm Beach County and Broward County, uh, most people have, have put up their storm shutters. Um, so uh, everybody's pretty prepared down here. Uh, up until two days ago, there were long, long lines for gas, hours and hours. Um, right now, you know, since they predicted that storm to turn, um, most people uh, now, you know, seem like they're they're pretty prepared and, you know, for anything to happen. So, Jason, when you look at what's happening in the Bahamas and CNN is managing to get uh, a signal out of there, out of Freeport right now. So we're seeing uh, some of some of what's going on, not really anything of the devastation that is certain to have taken place already. Those people had so few options in terms of getting out of the the eye and the and as you mentioned the swath and and the devastation associated with the storm, uh, Florida and and the rest of the United States in a little bit of a different situation where where you have evacuation options. Um, you do, uh, but you know the issue with this one is, and this storm has been very difficult for them to predict. Uh, if you look at the the cone of concern, they call it, up until about you know three four days ago, they had a huge bubble almost over the entire peninsula of Florida into South Carolina, into Georgia. Um, so it had to be as big as, you know, six, 650 miles. Um, in terms of evacuations, you know, uh, people evacuate inland in Florida and, you know, some people evac. you know, you'll evacuate south. There was no real option to do that up until about, you know, three days ago, just because of the, the sheer... Uh, you know, size of the storm and the fact that they really, really didn't know it was going, uh, where it was going. So um, they have evacuated uh, areas of uh, uh, Palm Beach and Martin counties, the lower-lying areas right now, so people have to move inland, uh, away from the beach and away from the intercoastal. Um, the, uh, the airports have been closed. Fort Lauderdale Airport's closing at, at noon today. Um, and uh, Palm Beach Airport is closed, and I think the Orlando Airport is closing a little bit later today as well. So um, there, there haven't been mass evacuations in my area like there, was, there, there were for Irma, but like I said, it was difficult to decide on what to do just because of the, they just didn't know where the storm was going. So that made it very difficult.
well, we you... were just going to basically hunker. Yeah, we were just going to basically hunker down for this one. Um, but I'll tell you right now, if if uh, I, I just can't even fathom this thing jogs another hundred miles to the uh, to, to, to the um, west, and and we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Jason, our thoughts are with you. We appreciate you painting such a terrific pa- uh, picture for us uh, here in uh, your former hometown. I know uh, Winnipeg's not uh, often far from your thoughts, as uh, you are uh, seldom not far from mine, my friend. Thank you, and, and stay safe, okay? All right. Take care, guys. Have a great day. You too. Jason Merrick joining us from Parkland, Florida, as they uh, await the, the uncertainty, that cone of uncertainty. and Even when you have options, I know it's so much more challenging for the people in the Bahamas, as you mentioned, if you didn't get a flight out, you're, you're trapped there. But even if you have that tank of gas, you have a tank of gas. Yet you can only get so far with that. And then where are you staying? Are they under evacuation? How do you How do you survive the next few days? I mean, those are all questions, too. We are the voice of the Blue Bombers. And so sometimes it's difficult to balance the whole idea of how much do people even want to hear about the Bombers today after that? I call it a heartbreaking loss, even though the Bombers, for the most part, Loren, people had them pegged as having no chance going into yesterday's game. But when you go ahead, 17-16, 3.29 left, you kick the ball into the end zone. Saskatchewan has to start in the five-yard line. You're telling me there's a chance. You're telling me there's a chance. Well, here's how it ended. And Lowther will line up to kick a 26-yard field goal. He'll let the clock run down until there's only a second or two left. And if he makes it, the game will be over. It'll be from left hash. There's the snap. The ball down. The kick is up. And it is good. And the Riders have won it. 1917. Always a matter of fact delivery when the other team scores the winning points on the last play of the game. Bob Irving joins us from Regina. Any moral victories in how things went down last night or yesterday afternoon, Bob? <laughs> well, I know the team wouldn't view it that way, Greg, but, uh, you know, as I think about the game, the Bombers probably did more good things than bad. They went into a very difficult environment uh, where they haven't won a game or haven't won very often 13 times in 14 years. They lost the Labor Day game in Regina before yesterday after a terrible start. Uh, They dominated the second half. They really did. Uh, They won the time of possession, 33 minutes to 27. They had 21 first downs, which is more than they've had most games this year against a tough defense in that noisy environment where it's hard to run your offense smoothly. I guess the one thing, though, that screams out at you is the second half, Saskatchewan had five offensive possessions, only five. And in the first four, they gained 17 yards, 20 yards, two yards, zero yards. So in their first four possessions, this is Saskatchewan in the second half, they had 39 yards of offense. In their fifth possession, they had an 11-play 87-yard drive. And that's what sticks in the craw, I know, of you, Greg, and all Bomber fans, because they played so well defensively after a poor start, so well. But when the game was on the line, the defense couldn't get it done. And I'll give Saskatchewan credit. They have made some some very good plays on offense, so I think you have to be fair in that regard. But, uh, boy, a, a disappointing a late game stand or non-stand, shall we say, by the Bomber defense. 
Willie Jefferson had, I thought, another terrific game. Adam Big Hill and, uh, of course, uh, Winston Rose with an interception yesterday, continuing to do those three players what they've done all year on this defense. And I I stay off Twitter during the games, and I really wanted to go on Twitter just prior to that drive and say, can everybody please get off this Blue Bomber defense? They are doing some special things this season, but it, it is tough. Despite of all the things you laid out, Bob, as to what they did in that second half, and it was truly, in my mind, very impressive until that last drive. And Adam Big Hill sort of says, hey, we have to take this one on ourselves, on the defense. Is that fair in your mind for him to take that stand? Yeah, I think it is. And I thought he was very honest in our post-game interview about that. He repeatedly said to us that... uh, you know, we just can't let that happen. We can't let a team drive the ball from their five-yard line, their five-yard line, um, like that. It just it's, it doesn't look good on us, and it didn't look good on the Bomber defense. And the offense, I thought, in the second half, you know, again, they got off to that terrible start, Greg. But, boy, Strebler really settled down. I thought it was a, a game of excellent growth for Chris Strebler, only the sixth start of his career and you have to uh, you have to be in Regina to understand how difficult that atmosphere is to function in for an offense because they can't hear the signals. It's all hand signals the entire game. But Strebler, I thought, uh, came on and played very, very well and led that drive that uh, gave them the go-ahead touchdown at the end of the game. He maintained his poise throughout. And then when it was turned over to the defense to, uh, you know, to shut Saskatchewan down, they just, for whatever reason, I, I, who knows, they just couldn't get it done. And so, yeah, I think the defense, this will not sit well with the defense as this week goes on and they get set for the rematch. Chris Strebler stood out to me, as you mentioned, in that last quarter, just with his ability to keep his head in the game and march it down the field. And then I want to ask you too, Bob, about the play of Johnny Augustine. Oh, yeah, very impressive. He had that one big run, which I think really sparked them when they got after that terrible start. Uh, Saskatchewan shut him down pretty good in the second half, but no, he was, he did everything you could ask of a young running back. Who's replacing a, a legend in Andrew Harris, uh, to do. He had almost a hundred yards rushing. He caught a couple of passes. I'm not sure how he did in the other aspects of the game. I'd have to watch it again, the blocking and the things that Andrew Harris does so well, it sort of go unnoticed, but, uh, no, all things considered, Johnny Augustine had an outstanding starting debut. Justin Medlock, I know he uh, kicked a couple field goals yesterday, but his punting was subpar in my mind. Is is he injured, Bob? Because it was such a big part of the game yesterday. Former Blue Bomber and then uh, longtime Seattle Seahawk punter John Ryan uh, back in his hometown of Regina, now punting for the Rough Riders, and he can launch it. I think he's got a 50-yard-plus average, had one punt at least to 60 yards yesterday. That was a, a a real key part of the possession game yesterday in my mind. Yeah, I agree with you. Justin Medlock did not have his best game punting the football, and I don't know how much of that. He lost his long snapper. Chad Rempel got hurt, and uh, he lost his long snapper for much of the game. That may have unsettled him. I don't know. I'd be reading his mind if I said that. But you're right, Greg. He did not punt as well as the other guy did. Uh, The Bombers also, on special teams, took three penalties. And going into the game, they'd only taken 15 all season in 10 games on special teams. Well, they took three yesterday, took 10 penalties overall. And uh, they just don't do that. That was out of character for them. 
and it hurt them. Some of the penalties were extremely costly. Uh, and again, they nearly won the game in spite of that. And I can't stress enough, in Regina, where it's hard to win at the best of times, and particularly on this date where the crowd is so revved up and the riders are so revved up, you know, I, th- I was impressed with the Bombers yesterday. Honest to gosh, I really was. I know the last three minutes left left the fans feeling really empty. I get that. I totally understand that. But I was impressed with what they did with the injuries they had in that environment against a very good football team. They got came off the floor after falling down 10 nothing, and nearly won that game. So uh, to me, that was a good sign. It really was. I know it's tough to, to take the loss. I, I understand that completely. But uh, in many ways, it was an impressive performance. Bob, I know you're going to have the uh, Bomber Coaches Show tomorrow night, 7 till 8. But I can't wait until then for you to a- answer a question for me as a, as a longtime listener, first-time caller. I want to ask you about a call that uh, I found bizarre at the end of the first half. Uh, Saskatchewan was slow in putting a, a play uh, in motion and got called ultimately for taking too much time to do so. Uh, and they did not lose a down. I looked, went to the CFL rule book immediately, and in my mind, uh, it had always been if you, you take that time count violation the last three minutes of either half, you lost a down. That did not happen yesterday. What happened? Well, I was a little bit uh, confused by that too, Greg, and, and I thought they would lose the down. I said that on the air, but I, I believe, and I'll have to check into this. I haven't had a chance yet. The Bombers said the option, you either, you know, you have them lose the down or you penalize them 10 yards. So they they walked them back 10 yards, but I thought you lost the down two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to have to look into that. I know Mike O'Shea was, was upset at the end of the first half, and he was still talking to the officials at the start of the second about something. And I, I've got to follow up on that and find out what that was all about because right now I can't answer that question for you. But I was uh, – every – game I've watched in the CFL, if you take a time count violation inside of the final three minutes of either half, you lose the down. And it didn't happen yesterday, and that surprised me. Okay, well, that's good. I, I'm not out uh, standing on a ledge all on my lonesome shouting at the sky. So that's good. I'm glad you're on the same page with me. Bob, thanks for this as always. Uh, you driving back, flying, taking a bus, uh, hitchhiking. How are you getting home? Greg, why would anybody fly to Regina when it's a nice, cool... Five, maybe four and a half hour drive. Four and a half. Well, we got to travel know. with Bob more yeah. often. I think. I, I this sounds fun. There's not much radar uh, in some <laughs> spots between <laughs> Regina and Winnipeg. Careful around Musaman. I've been trapped there before. Bob, thanks for this. We'll uh, look forward okay. to hearing you tomorrow night with the coach. Thanks, partner. You bet. For those of you who are working, great to have you aboard. It's nice to have some camaraderie when we're working. Feeling sorry for ourselves this morning, Loren McNabb, is that fair to say? A little bit. Yes, more than a little bit. Come on, be honest. I don't know. I mean, when you know it's coming, it's not like it was a surprise. I suppose so. The thing is, there's not a lot open today. So there's so many things I would use today for to get things done as we get the kids ready and meal prep or whatever it is you're doing. But there's nothing to do do today you can go out and have some fun at different locations in terms of parks and all that kind of thing but there's you can't finish up any of your last minute items 837 let's start the half hour with a visit to fort white alive you open today barrett miller 
Fort White is open today, uh, 10 to 5. And actually, Lorraine, I was going to say there's nothing to do in the human world, but there is tons <laughs> going on out there. And um, much like us, nature hasn't taken Labor Day off. It's busy at work and on full display out there today. Well, we were joking that this is sort of the unofficial end of summer. And I, you know, the fact that you, you're moving back into a more get your mind into work mode. Mm-hmm. Does that happen in the animal world? And I don't mean definitively on Labor Day. Well, obviously, and- <laughs> they don't have a calendar. But there has to be a changing acknowledgement that the seasons are changing and oh, all the rest. Oh, and it's certainly on. Um, no, it started, I started noticing things about two, three weeks ago. And that'll keep on going right until the first snow falls. Uh, we're sort of into... It's not quite autumn. It's not quite fall, but it's also not summer anymore. And one of the funny things, just because that winter season of cold where nothing's really growing and there's less food available is coming, the back-to-school busyness sort of coincides with a busy time in that natural world prepping for those long months of lesser resources. So, yeah, busyness for everybody. I wanted to ask, you know, we hear all the time, everyone has their different kind of old wives' tales or myths or legends in terms of what they think are the signs of an early winter or a late winter. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing anything out there that would show us that, uh-oh, these these squirrels are packing in some acorns super early or whatever the case might be? Well, um, no. Uh, so my go-to, and it really truly is an old tale with no scientific basis, <laughs> is when the goldenrod flowers and it is right bang on when it should. It was sort of started in July and sort of peaking now. So according to, you know, ancient ancient family lore, that should be a pretty standard winter. So when it when it's finished flowering, is no, that what you're when, saying? When, or when, when, it, when you can't look through the woods without seeing yellow for the goldenrods, fall is on the way. But it, it's on time is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, it's on time this year. So, so I'm, you're not stressing. I'm not stressing. Um, I'm also not looking forward to a late winter start, but... Uh, yeah, again, no real basis in science. Now, some of the more actual valid uh, signs of changing season, you can't go by the leaves this year in Winnipeg. The leaves have been changing for quite some time, but that is because we are so dry. Mm-hmm. Water leaves the tree through the leaves and uh, to protect itself and make sure that it can grow again next year, marshals its resources and it sort of like, you know, cuts its losses um, and get let's rid of those leaves a little bit earlier. Um, geese are starting to return. The geese parents, well, return where they're returning from, Barrett Miller. They're returning from the further for, north. The further north ones are starting to come in and stage here. Staging is kind of like a layover at an airport, mm-hmm. only when your flight takes a couple weeks, um, you know, you need a little bit more than a couple hours on the ground. They'll fly in. They've used a lot of energy in that flight, so they restore some of that energy, get some good sleep in, get some good feeds in on harvested fields, take on some water, fatten up for that next hop. Um, Our local geese, they nest and they sort of disperse. They disperse away because you don't want to all be in one place competing for the same food. Exactly, exactly. And it's just sort of nice for them to have their own space for a couple months. During nesting season, I understand it, but they don't want to be around other geese. It is crowded and there's not enough food to go around. And that's why they get ornery. And that's why they come after us hissing and flapping. But for most of the summer, it's pretty quiet. And in fact, the adults lose their flight feathers. You want the absolute best feathers for fall migration. You know, no mechanical problems, no emergency landings in the goose world. And it also means that they have to defend their little ones. So a lot of little geese make it to being big geese because mom and dad can't fly away. 
when those so geese, what happens to them come winter they regrow their flight feathers really? and that's right around the beginning of august you start seeing geese in the air again okay if everybody thinks back june july you probably didn't actually see geese in the air well i think that's because we all associate with any sort of movement Mm-hmm. Of the geese with the changing of the seasons, mm-hmm. but that I guess that's just uh, a coincidence mm-hmm. based on when they when they lose their flight mm-hmm. feathers. Okay, keep teaching us more. That for me is one of the sure signs. It's sort of the early summer that everything's growing as opposed to everything's ripening and heading into fall. The first couple of geese that I see flying over my head at Fort White. Um, when you startle a goose and it doesn't run away, when it actually jumps up and can fly away. It's sort of the, oh, okay, that uh, late spring, early summer thing is over, and it's sort of the height of things and sort of leading into fall. So that's starting. They're starting to pile in, starting to do their staging thing. We've still got lots of time with them, just like we still have a few weeks of fairly nice weather before it gets really fall-like. But uh, no, it's a good sign that things are on the change. I have to ask this following question because I've run in, literally run into so <laughs> many problems this year with deer. And I know this is the season to which the the mating begins, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. to speak. Is it? The, I've seen so many deer in the last few days that I've actually changed my route to work. I will okay. no longer drive uh, down the St. Mary's Road by the river because I'm outside the city limits. I've moved it all the way over, extra 10 minutes for my drive because I've had enough with my near deer misses or my actual non misses, I've hit them. And so it seems early to me to see this many, but it probably is just normal. Well, it see, it does seem a little bit early. And when you mentioned that, I had to do some thinking because it really is a little bit, although it sort of made sense. Your commute is a little bit earlier than most people's commutes to be on the morning show. What are they doing at 3.30 in the morning though? Why aren't they sleeping? What are they doing, Barrett? They're waking up with the sun um, when the sun sort of changes. So in the real heat of summer, they just sort of adopt a more nocturnal habit because it's hot out. They have fur. There's flies. Middle of the night, mosquitoes are most active half an hour before, half an hour after sunrise and sunset. That middle of the night, no bugs. The deer, it's nice and cool. <clears throat> Nothing else around. They can go about their feeding routine and sleep away the hottest parts of the day. As things get cooler in August, they start going back to their, they actually prefer dawn and dusk. Dawn in early August is still like 5.30, 5 in the morning. The sky starts getting light half an hour before that, so you're still looking at a light sky by 4.30, and that's the deer alarm clock, time to get up, have some breakfast. So it's just the timing of my drive probably. Exactly. It's and not the re- because there's an early winter coming or something. I don't think so. Good. No, it's been I'll dry. There's lots in the woods, but I do think it's more about timing. Everybody else, most of most of Winnipeg, most of Manitoba, that commutes sort of 6.30 to 7.30 as sunrise starts lining up with peak deer activity and deer activity gets up, we're going to see more of that. So everybody, caution. Barrett, it was two years ago that we had a moose loose at the University of Manitoba just in time for the heaviest of the traffic to get into said banjo bowl. Loren talking about her increasing uh, interaction with deer and my increasing frustration with rabbits in our neighborhood. And I know I'm not alone in this. So is this something that we're just paying more attention to, social media, etc., paying more attention to these things? Or are we genuinely seeing more wildlife in areas that we're unused to seeing them? It, you know, it's probably a combination of all three. 
<clears throat> Winnipeg is a growing city, and overall, we're a green city. A lot of areas that were suburban, not green, South St. Vital, the Fort Richmond area, a lot of those areas that were built, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the joke used to be like, you know, like <laughs> any tree in St. Vital is a special tree because <laughs> there was nothing. And now those newer, newer neighborhoods are starting to green up. Our really new suburbs that have been built have sort of been built around the idea of natural landscaping, creating habitat, uh, working with some kids, shout out to Sage Creek School as they go back to school, uh, did some outdoor math with kids there um, back in the springtime. We looked at the prairie area that had been burned and is managed naturally and just a field of grass. The biodiversity on the small scale, rabbits, mice, that kind of thing in the prairie section to go along with all the amazing prairie plants was just off the charts compared to the nice manicured what we thought we were looking after. So we have a green city. We have green corridors and rivers, places like Assiniboine Park connecting through the Assiniboine Forest to Fort White. We have green places for animals to be. We have green roads for animals to move along. As we build, yeah, we encroach on habitat sometimes. As we build, though, we also change the mix and sometimes turn what used to be a used-up farmer's field or um, an old, you know, brownfield site into something green and lawn with lots of food and shelter and more animals will come in as a result. Now, the moose at the Banjo Bowl, that could have just been... Anomaly. <laughs> exactly. Well, you think 10 years ago when the, uh, the stadium used to be in the Polo Park area, a moose on a Sunday at U of M in September... Maybe one or two really, really eager students hitting the library might have seen that moose. <laughs> Good enough. There weren't 40,000 people converging there, and the eyes of the nation weren't on the like <laughs> IG field with the a moose outside. Moose, yeah. I mean, that was one of the most Canadian moments ever. This big Canadian football rivalry game is delayed by a moose. It was <laughs> great. But uh, the rabbit question, that's an interesting one. Rabbits are cyclical. Um, one neighborhood will be overrun, and one neighborhood will be asking, where are all the rabbits? Really? So, um, yeah, really. Uh, so this could come to an end without me taking any sort of draconian measures? Not not only it could, it will. You will in the next, I mean, you might have to wait a year to 18 months, but you will see fewer rabbits soon. It's like the tent caterpillars when they have their peak seasons every 15 years or something. And I don't want to compare because I hate those tent caterpillars and I still kind of have an affinity to the rabbits. But the idea is that they... Their population might increase in certain periods. The and popula then yep. Population will increase until the resources are used up. There's just not enough food. And I mean, the city is a little bit artificial because we do keep on growing food and adding food. But things like predators, there are more things that eat rabbits working around the city than we realize. The weasel family, birds of prey, even roadkill start taking its toll, unfortunately. And more rabbits will get hit on the road when there's more rabbits to be hit on the road. And that'll cause a decline. And there'll be a couple years, a couple months where there's not so many. And then, you know, the joke about breeding like rabbits, it's a joke for a reason. They'll come back. It just is a natural cycle. Out in the woods, the snowshoe hare and the lynx are really, really linked. Every seven years, there's a peak. And every seven years, there's a low. In the city, it's a little bit less so. Lynx eat a lot of rabbit. When the rabbit population is up, lynx do well. When the rabbit population is low year after the lynx population is. Here in the city, it's a lot more about just 
ebb and flow. We Loren, don't have that. Loren, are you hearing that I should get a pet lynx out of this? Yeah, this is, this is that, what I'm hearing. That's the takeaway. I don't think that's the takeaway. I'd like to see you try that at your house. Yeah, Boy. No, it's not happening, but th- I'd like to I'd like to try it. One thing before we let you go. I feel like this is a completely self-serving segment. I had all these <laughs> questions for Barrett, really based on all the things I see on my drives in every morning. You mentioned rabbits. I see way more rabbits. I see way more raccoons. And then the last week with the rain, I know earthworms will come out mm-hmm. in the rain. Do frogs? I had to, it was a game of frogger on the road. Um, certainly when it's wet, especially after a long dry spell, certain amphibians, like some toads, some frogs, and uh, in some parts of the province, salamanders will actually emerge oh, and yes. take advantage. Amphibians breathe through their skin. They need to stay wet. Uh, if you think back to elementary school, that's what makes a reptile and an amphibian different. That amphibian needs water. When it's been dry like it has been, they're hiding wherever they can stay out of the sun and keep some moisture in their skin to keep alive. The rain comes and it's like us on the first sunny day, like at the beach. We're out there enjoying. Exactly. Um, Before a thunderstorm or just after a thunderstorm on some corners of the prairie, you can see thousands, literally thousands of tiger salamanders emerge and look for that next water Boys hole. Boisevain, Killarney, Oh, Minidosa Southwest. on the farm. They oh, used to just Francis, come out on yeah. the road. But these these toads, yep. I think, or frogs last week, I just, yep. I said to Brett, I said, I can't, I'm running into the deer and now I'm killing frogs. And I just feel like, I, I feel like wildlife hates me. Maybe you should get a cow catcher or a snowplow in the front of your, uh, of your yeah. vehicle. Well, there's a... Uh, or maybe Manitoba needs um, frog tunnels. You can actually put a tunnel underneath the roadway, and that'll sometimes encourage those critters to Do use the tunnel. Do we have those anywhere? Uh, around Narcissus for the snakes. For snakes, yeah. Um, and I have seen a couple in some really... High salamander zones because people do love their salamanders. They do. What's the name of that mountain before I let you go at Fort White uh, alive? Oh, the mountain bike course, Bison Butte. I love the Bison it. Butte mountain bike uh, facility. Yeah. Uh, one of the highest points in Winnipeg. Always, always accessible, free to access if you ride on in. No emissions, no admission. Um, it nice. is a leftover from the Canada Games that was built for the competition that was held here a couple years ago. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to check that and the rest of Fort White out this weekend. Fort White Alive. Check it out online. Barrett Miller, always a pleasure to have you in studio, my friend. Have Still a great have so Labor Day. so many more questions. So many more animals. Well, we'll just have to bring them back. <laughs> Loren, uh, this is a story that uh, I think you've been anxious uh, to share with our listeners. What's a fascinating one, and I don't think there's any of us that haven't driven down a uh, street in this city or across the province where you perhaps haven't noticed a billboard or a placard with a missing person's face on it. And they might be different faces, they might be different names, but no matter who is featured on these billboards that have popped up around Winnipeg or Manitoba or across the country, there's always the one question that goes with it. Who are they? Where are they, most importantly? What happened to all these missing persons? And, and that's kind of the question that's been eating at our next guest. Carla Stevens-Tolstoy ha- has been looking into this missing persons case since January 2016. That's when a 42-year-old London, Ontario mother and grandmother went missing. Her name was Shelley DeRoche. And while Tolstoy never knew her, she somehow felt compelled to help her. Launching a podcast to talk about Shelley, a woman who did work the street-level sex trade in London when she disappeared, but a woman who also is deserving of some closure and answers. And Carla Stevens-Tolstoy joins us now to tell us more. Good morning, Carla. 
Hi, good morning. Well, what was it about this woman's story? You know, we a lot of us have heard these before and had the same questions as you, but something about this really shook you and made you think you could do something to help. Well, at the time, um, I was actually looking to tell another story, and a woman had contacted me and said, is there any way that you could tell the story about my friend who had gone missing? And I was like, well, that's not really my, my area of expertise. I don't really do investigative work. Um, but let me just take a look at it, and then I can you know, get back to you and tell you perhaps some next steps you could take. And so I went right down to London, and the first person I met was her sister, Laura. And when I saw Laura, Laura looked um, almost like she wasn't even there. You know, she saw me, and all she did was come up and and hug me and say, oh, my God, will you help me? And I didn't expect that. I thought I was just going to meet her and hear a little bit about her her sister and maybe do a small podcast episode on her. And she said, please, nobody cares. She's gone missing. Nobody's looking for her. The police have given up the search after only, a, you know, a few months. I'm desperate. I don't have the financial resources. Um, I don't have a great family history in this town and just nobody cares about us. And there was something about her. I don't know what it was that I just wanted to just say it's all going to be okay and I'm going to I'm going to just partner up with you and we're going to do this together. And that was um, that you know became a two-year journey for me on trying to locate what happened to her sister. And there's a lot of things I was so uneducated on. I mean, I had no idea how um, how exposed our sex workers are and how if they do run into trouble, there's not a lot of support for them and that when they do go missing, nobody really looks for them. I mean, they really are a prime target for anyone to abuse them and throw them away. Well, Carla, I was going to jump in because this is a London, Ontario woman, but this story might be familiar to many Canadians across the country. We've heard this, you know, in the Missing and Murdered uh, Indigenous Women Inquiry, that in some of those cases where it was connected to the sex trade, there was this sort of like, you know, kind of brushing it off, maybe not a big deal, or also just concerns that that might impact how police take these situations Not just seriously. the public. Not, Not just, just the, the public, public. But our officials. And so have you learned more on that in terms oh of how... Oh, God. I, I'm just so disappointed with the police force on so many levels. And I feel I can say that now because I had to try to work with them, which was impossible. Impossible. Anytime... I mean, it got so bad that when I was doing an interview in London and I was walking Shelley streets and I was asking tons of questions, you know, everywhere... A police car would pop up and just stare me down. And I know that you wouldn't, you, as a public, you'd be like, that's impossible. She's making that up. But there was a crew with me, um, a CTV crew with me that was, a CBC crew with me that was like, oh, my God, why did they do that? And I said, I have no idea. They just follow me around and stare me down as though that's going to affect anything I'm doing. So we often talk about uh, the, the digital age and this age of empowerment uh, in several positive ways with regard to um, consumers having uh, more information than they've ever had at their fingertips than ever before, an intera- ability to interact with people we might not otherwise be able to interact with. But it also gives 
uh, people like us, storytellers, those that that want to tell their story, an opportunity opportunity to do so independently, without uh, necessarily any support from a network, uh, and the ability to to share stories that that deserve to be told. How did you How did you come to want to be a, a storyteller first and foremost, and then dovetail it into where this has taken you? Well, you know, I never saw my, myself as, you know, I, I come from a biz back, business background. I was an executive in telecom, so I never saw myself as a storyteller. I just, uh, you know, leaped into this area because I spent a lot of time with street kids and helping on the streets. And every time I met somebody, they would have this story to tell me. And I felt obligated to tell their story. And so it started with me telling individual stories of what people's lives had been like and the trauma they'd been through to, to shine a light on, um, you know, much of this population that, that goes ignored. And for Shelley's story, I didn't realize it would be two years of my life. And I didn't realize how much I would have appreciated um, a, a news not only a news background, but somebody to help me because it, it was all on my shoulders and my editor to learn as we went. And I just had never really done journalism before, so I really struggled, and I feel like it took twice as long. But I also was able to go and do a lot more things that were probably unsafe because I didn't have um, a network that said I couldn't do things. <laughs> so I was putting myself in a lot of uncomfortable positions more often than not. And when I finally stopped, decided to stop doing that is when one of my um, informants, I call them, had said, listen, um, people are around here are talking that the next time you come into their area and ask so many questions, they're going to stab you with a dirty needle. Mm. And that's when I kind of like was, wow, I'm, I'm married. I have a child. This isn't fair to anyone to put myself at risk. But I did, I did go into uh, multiple crack houses. I did go and search um, in a few basements, which was very scary for me because um, the owners weren't there and they were running a, a, you know, a sex drug ring, and I was really scared. I mean, there's lots of times where I was so scared. But for some reason, I would just say, like, no, 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 like, we need closure. And... Carla, before I just, we're, just because we only have a, about a minute left here, I just wanted to mention for our listeners' sake, you're doing all these things to shed light on someone else, to focus the story on Shelley DeRoche, and that is the name of the podcast, Finding Shelley DeRoche. And yet in the midst of all this, you're putting yourself at risk in the terms of the danger and part of your investigation. But just for our listeners' perspective, you're battling cancer right now and, and trying to fight someone else's battle as well. How are you doing? Well, it was a shock because I have stage four um, cancer, meaning there is no um, cure for what I have. But I do feel a need to help find closure. I do say to Laura that, uh, you know, when my time comes, I'll be up there with Shelly and, and we'll be together and, and perhaps that's some support to Laura. But it's been a really hard, hard year. It's been a hard year, but I don't want to give up on this. I want to thank you for your time. Um, Greg's sitting here shaking his head, Carla, because so many of us would uh, become consumed with ourselves in this moment. And uh, I'm wondering where you find the strength to keep thinking of others in the midst of all this. 
I get a lot of strength from helping others, and that's always been my personality. And uh, even with my stage four, I'm continuing to fight for foster care reform, and I sit on an amazing committee I'm part of. And that's really important to me because Shelly came from foster care and I learned about how screwed up our foster care system is because of her. So now I also um, took that upon myself to uh, work on that committee and fight foster care reform, um, as well as Shelly DeRoger and as well as continue to help street kids and um, work with them to gain some self-confidence. And that's what helped me battle all of this is giving back. Carla, thank you for this. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks for sharing Shelley's story, Finding Shelley DeRoche. Uh, that is uh, available wherever podcasts are available. And uh, Carla, thank you uh, for, for being who you are. And uh, please keep in touch with us, okay? Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Carla Stevens-Tolstoy joining us uh, this morning. What a courageous woman. Lauren, thanks for bringing this story to our attention. Well, I think it's a great example. Her body is, you know, riddled with untreatable cancer right now. That's how, what, what first caught my attention in this uh, story that was shared with me by uh, Winnipegger Susie Arajevic Parker. And then to go on and hear that she's using this time that she has left to to help somebody else is pretty remarkable. And Good for all of us to hear on this uh, as we kick back into, you know, sometimes I feel like this time of year is like a, a New Year's resolution time of year because you're getting back to normal. This is the real start this of the year. This is the real start of the year for so many. And yeah. so you make lists or you think of the things you want to do or be or accomplish. And she's a pretty inspiring woman that might have a lot of us thinking about, hey, who could we help out there? Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.